0: Oh, and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Those who control their passions
1: do so because their passions are weak enough to be controlled.
0: I'm Ian Woodworth and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we are diving back into our planar travels going through the four corners of the alignment chart here in the Outer Plains. I put a poll up on our Twitter account let it run for a week to see which one of these four planes you guys wanted us to go to first. And the resounding winner was the Olympian Glades of Arborea. So that's where we're going to be starting today.
1: I'm kind of really excited this one won. I hadn't heard much about the Planes of Arborea. Like I kind of knew Olympias was here. But the more I read about this, this place is freaking fun.
0: It is great. It is so much fun. I think you described it best whenever we were talking a little bit a couple of days ago. It's the frat boy plane.
1: It really is the frat boy plane. If you were going to have like an 80s, 90s American Pie... Porkies, not another teen movie, it would totally be on this plane. I mean, this is just where it's going to happen.
0: Or, you know, like Pineapple Express or that Hangover. Exactly, yeah. Any, Any of those, of those like... kind of movies, they would all be happening here. Anything that's like
1: about drunken
0: debauchery, well-intended humor. Harold and Kumar go to White Castle.
1: Yeah, things that just go way too far for absolutely no reason other than just pure revelry. It's here.
0: Absolutely. This is the plane of chaotic good alignment. This is where the court of Corallon Lorethian, the patron of the Elven Pantheon, resides this is where most of the elven pantheon choose to reside. Most of them on the first layer. This is also, in older editions, Queen Titania of the Seelie or Summer Court of the Fae would periodically have her court here. I could see that. It bounced between Arboria, Ysgard, and the Beastlands. And you'll find out, as we get on a little later, why that is. But in second edition... It was also the home to Mount Olympus and the Greek gods, specifically calling them out as the Greek gods. So Zeus and Hermes and Hera and all of them, they're all here on Mount Olympus. And again, this is where
1: like, I knew anything about Olympus. It was from, again, this is where Olympus was supposed to be. Going back, you said this is where most of The elves wind up as petitioners, which I found kind of shocking personally, because whenever I think of elves, I kind of have the whole Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring elf, where they're kind of dry and stodgy, which really wouldn't be here. I mean, I can kind of see it. So that was kind of a, oh, okay, so they do have some flavor after all, which is kind of fun to see.
0: Yeah, but the Lord of the Rings elf that you typically see, they may seem very dry and stodgy to the humans that are coming in, but they are... Known for being very musical, very natural, very easygoing by and large. If you were to go and look at the Elves of Mirkwood in The Hobbit as it's written in the books, there is a lot of festival and merriment going on in there. That is true. That's why they ended up having 13 empty wine barrels to float down the river to get to uh, Del, to get to Dell.
1: Yeah, I mean, that does make
0: sense. That kind of reminds
1: me when I was in college and I was doing my Greek and Roman Civ for some of my upper division history. Uh, the professor was telling the story that there was actually a traveling group of Greek musicians they were going and they played at an amphitheater in Rome. And they were playing what they thought was their raucous good time music. And the Romans were just sitting there kind of bored with it. And they said, so they went and they were obviously wanting to play it. they didn't know what else to do. So they played something that they thought was very humble and lowbrow. And the Romans just kind of erupted you know, and then then they really got into it. And so maybe that's what the elves are like. It's kind of that, even for them, their raucous good times still kind of not quite so dwarven, you would say.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and as portrayed in Dungeons & Dragons, they are a very ephemeral race by and large. They do keep to their fey ancestry a little stronger than they would in some source like Lord of the Rings. This is also true. And that... Brings in a little bit of that mischievous nature of the Fae, that little bit of whimsy that they have, and all of that chaos that I wouldn't want to say rugged individualism because there's nothing rugged about an elf. But, <laughs> but there is a great deal of individualism within the elves, which they kind of have to have considering how long they live.
1: Four centuries of suppressed humor finally get to be released. But I know it's not really suppressed. I know it's... There. It's a different flavor. It is absolutely a different flavor, yeah.
0: The High Elves tend to be a little more stodgy than the Wood Elves. The Wood Elves are the ones that are really going to have a raucous good time when they get to Arborea.
1: Yeah. Another thing that I'm sure they probably delved and picked a bit with Skyrim the Thalmor. That very New England aristocracy like Martha's Vineyard and the Howls from Gilligan's Island. I love you know, and just that very proper outward appearance to
0: things yeah that is very much how the thalmor are depicted but then by comparison compare that to how the bosmer act in lore in elder scrolls games there are some of them who actively practice cannibalism right you know and while i'm not going to say that's good it's not a good
1: time but
0: (laughs) (laughs) but it's the bosmer are the wild the wood elf equivalent And so they are going to have that whole closer to nature, more individual, more primal. Yeah, yeah, a little more primal, a little more. It's not fey in the Elder Scrolls, but that more fey nature to them.
1: Yeah, I can see that. Our first rabbit
0: trail. This yeah.
1: episode's going to be full of rabbit trails because it is, in fact, chaotic good.
0: <laughs> yes, there's a great deal of chaos involved. And speaking of it being chaotic good, back in 3rd edition, whenever they had the alignment traits where it would affect characters based on their alignment whenever they showed up, because it is chaotic good, if you were either lawful or evil when you showed up in Arbori, you took a minus two penalty to all of your mental stats. And you took a minus four if you were lawful evil. So if you were diametrically opposed, you took a minus four penalty on all of your mental stats. So any check that involved your intelligence, wisdom, or charisma.
1: So, I mean, you wouldn't want to run. A terrible lackey through here, but I don't know. I've seen very few players actually straight play. Well, no, I've seen, actually, I have seen a handful of Lawful Evil characters. Darth Vader wouldn't do so well right here. The Force would be very weak with them.
0: Yes, it would. But by and large, Arborea is pretty mundane when it comes to what goes on here. There aren't any elements that are diminished. There's no real special magical traits aside from the alignment penalties, magic Functions the way it normally should here. You don't get the wild magic surges like you do in Limbo. I mean, it's pretty humdrum drab to that account. It doesn't have much magic, but it's got a great personality. It does. Oh, it does. <laughs> it has such a great personality. So, one of the aspects that is laid out in the third edition manual of the Plains for Arborea is that it is divinely mutable. So the gods who reside here can change it at their whim. So if you're walking through the forest and you're trying to get to a certain god and they don't want you there, they will literally just have you walk in circles. This and you will very much out. the
1: lost forest for Legend of Zelda.
0: Yes. <laughs> Among other places, there's a forest stage like this in the old Golden Sun games as well. Oh, you played those too? I loved those.
1: those were yeah, fun. those were great. The other one I think of is the Elven City where you're looking for the
0: uh, werewolves and the lycanthropes in Dragon Age. I didn't get that far in Dragon Age. Oh, okay. I couldn't get hold of the mechanics. It just didn't gel with me. Fair enough. But yeah, so the native gods can change it at their whim. Anyone else has to use magic to do it. But the one big detail that they do drive home is that it is infinite in size so it's almost impossible to travel from one town to the next town on foot because it's infinite so there's this infinite span between locations so you would end up having to use magic and teleport yourself from one town to another, or have a divine power decide that, yes, you're going to get to that town, and just warp your path so that you could get there.
1: That said, there's plenty of magic here, so it's not like that's going to be terribly difficult to find.
0: No, it really won't. I did find some things... I can't remember where I found them, but there are certain schools of magic that behave a little bit differently in Arborea. The one that I remember specifically was Divination. So all of your Divination spells, whenever you're casting them in Arborea, you used to have to perform a ritual in order to do them like the greek oracles would reading the entrails or an animal sacrifice or something like that but it did specify that you didn't actually have to kill a creature for an animal sacrifice it could be as simple as just releasing it
1: right so the romans had several oracles like that that talked about releasing birds and you had to see where they appeared or where they'd fly through in a window where they would defecate in a field that kind of thing so kind of like the cow patty bingo yeah that actually used to be a form of divination of all things. Oh, he pooped in square B1. That's going to be a good harvest, boys. There's a couple others. Things like reading tea leaves or coffee grounds. Another form of divination. Casting bones. The way a candle would melt or the veins that would show up in like a blue cheese or something like that, you'd cut a cheese open and look at the veins and that could be a form of divination
0: as well. Yeah. So all the divination spells that you cast in Arboria used to require a ritual of that nature. I don't think it was ever specified which rituals went to which spells, but for roleplay purposes, pick an appropriate one for your character and then you would have to perform that ritual in order to cast the spell.
1: Depending on the DM's background or how familiar they are with different forms of magic or something like that tarot cards could be another option but that would be a really fun thing for dm to do is if they had to do a ritual depending on the spell they want to cast have the player roll like arcana check or a knowledge check to see if they could figure out what kind of ritual would tie in with their divination spell and if they could match them up well then they it works or it gives them a bonus and if they pick something way way off then maybe give them a disadvantage on the roll or something like that or take something
0: off the roll or just doesn't work
1: Yeah, or just doesn't work, it just fizzles.
0: Or gives them a false result.
1: Yeah, even that. Oh, false results with divinations are just wonderfully evil. Wrong
0: plane for that, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) But as I mentioned a little bit earlier, Arborea, being chaotic good, is bordered by Ysgard, which sits between Arborea and Elysium, and the Beastlands, which sits between Arborea and Limbo. And the edges, quote-unquote, of the plane of Arborea are a little bit wibbly-wobbly-timey-wimey. So they will shift and adjust at their own little whim. So you could be walking through Arborea for a while, and then one day you wake up and you're standing in Eastgard. Whoops. <laughs> because the border of Arborea shifted, and now you're in EastGuard. So this is my rationale. This is part of the reason why the Summer Court, Titania's demiplane, shifts from Arboria to Ysgard and the Beastlands because it is in a location near the "quote unquote" border. I keep putting it in quotes because if it's infinite, it doesn't actually have a
1: border. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. If it's infinite, so is everywhere the border. So you could be like dead sinner in Arborea and then bloop you're in the Beastlands for no reason at all other than you
0: got blooped. I would say that being specifically at Mount Olympus or specifically at Arvandor, which is where the court of the Elven Pantheon, the court of the Seldarine happens to be. If you were in those specific locations, the gods there held it stable enough to where it it's not going to shift on you. But if you're out in the wilderness, absolutely. You could just randomly pop into another plane. And that plays into the chaotic nature of the plane.
1: I want to say this, and I'm sure this is going to come out horribly incorrect, but the plane kind of butterflies, almost like it has ADHD or ADD. So it's there until it's, oh, look, something shiny. And then suddenly you're somewhere else. (laughs) You know, it's kind of hard to have that.
0: It does seem that way sometimes. That strong
1: line focus. Yeah. Which again, adds so much. I absolutely love this plane. This plane is so much fun.
0: Yeah. And I am of the opinion that because it's a demiplane and not a realm and because titania depending on which edition you're playing in may or may not actually be a deity she has lost that greater deity status that she has had in the older games in fifth edition now she is just an archfey whatever that title happens to be so she's not explicitly a goddess anymore and if that's the case then that would explain why her demiplane while it is stable enough to hold itself together and hold its own identity, isn't strong enough to anchor itself firmly into Arborea and where the borders of the plains can shift and her plane stays put. I can see that, especially
1: like if you look at some other lore, particularly the Winter Fey tend to be mutable, I want to say. They have different aspects they embrace depending on if they're in a good mood, if they're trying to be subversive, if they're trying to be diplomatic, if they're just outright pissed. And those traits kind of bubble to the surface quicker and their entire demeanor can change so if the summer court has anything to match that which depending on which lore you read they kind of do
0: oh they have to that's the mercurial nature of nature the fey. of the
1: fey right so the fact that they shift between elysium ysgard and the beast lands largely depending on their demeanor or how obviously the beast lands is going to be far more primal, I would say that Arborea is probably more neutral and more in a good spirit, and Ysgard's probably going to be more of that strong, more militant feel. But because, as you said, the Fae are so mercurial innately that everything about their realm will likewise be mercurial. Because even if they did have that much control... I could argue that it moves because they have so much control that it just affects their surroundings depending on their mood at any given time.
0: I was actually just going to say that if we were to keep to the whole Titania is essentially a god and that the Archfey are effectively deity level powers, that the shifting of Arborea could be a direct result of Titania's whim. Yep. Like, okay, so we want to have a hunt, so we're going to shift this part of Arborea into the Beastlands so we can have ourselves a nice hunt. Yes. Yeah, that's the sort of thing that they would do because they have the power to do it. It's at their whim. They do things in the moment because they want to do them in that moment. And so why not? I would say it's probably
1: almost even innate and they don't realize they're doing it. And the realm just suits itself to their whim.
0: I think that they are powerful enough to know that they're doing it. I don't think they care that they're doing it. They don't view the others who are affected by this shift as being important enough for them to care.
1: That fits. Yeah, I could absolutely see it in that regard. Yeah, that would be... Lore-wise, a perfect fit.
0: So there you go, guys. (laughs) You have a couple of options, depending (laughs) on how you want to interpret that. Yeah,
1: I mean, there are so many ways to run so much stuff in here. That's what I like about this. There's so much you can do and so many different ways you can do things, and it all really works.
0: So as with all other planes in the Outer planes, you do get petitioners into Arborea. And the petitioners in Arborea come in two flavors. The first and the most common are the spirits of the elven dead. As we mentioned, the elves come here when they die. They have a couple of different ways that they can go about doing it. Some of them just disperse their consciousness into the plane itself. I'm not entirely sure what all that entails. It's not really gone into in any sort of detail, but they just sort of flow into the mercurial chaotic magical nature of the plane others take the form of celestial or anarchic creatures so creatures that have a distinctly good or distinctly chaotic appearance to them so they could be reincarnated into a unicorn or a Kirin or a pegasus if they so choose or some sort of large cat or bear or other predator or really any kind of natural beast with just that extra positive energy or that extra chaotic energy infused in them that just sort of warps the normal natural shape into something a little more substantial. And then on top of that, you're going to end up having a lot of your fey-influenced beasts. So like Blink Dogs. Blink Dogs are definitely going to be here. Oh, absolutely. And I can definitely see this as being part of that whole cycle of, where an elf is born and they die, and their soul goes to Arboria, and they become a blink dog in Arboria, and they end up getting picked up in one of these Fey Summer Court hunting parties, and they end up coming into the Fey Wild as a blink dog pulled in by these Fey. Yeah, then, I mean, and then that cycle, that whole cycle, continues.
1: That totally fits.
0: And then the third option is that they just retain their elven form and then they become retainers in the court of one of the various elven deities. And that seems to be a fairly common one from everything that I've read. They would be like the acting soldiers and the scouts and the hunters and such that are patrolling the areas around the domains of these different elven deities. And then there's the second group of petitioners who are called the Bacchae, you know, obviously derived from Bacchus, (laughs) the Greek god of wine and revelry. The Bacchae are the spirits of gourmands, gluttons, and well-meaning drunkards, and those who relished the act of living.
1: This is why this is the frat house realm.
0: Absolutely. And they just form these giant parties. And they just go around and party until eternity.
1: And that's kind of what they do. And again, this is one of those things, this runs through... Everything from what I've read, even the deities themselves, because especially with the Greek gods, if you've read any of the Greek epics, anybody that has the self-importance and ego of a Greek god and the self-control of a toddler, it's probably gonna wind up here. So they're gonna go. It's all boasting, it's all pride, it's a giant e-pin measuring contest. Who can out drink each other, who can out eat each other, who can belch the longest, who can hit the hardest, who can spit the furthest. I mean, this is just the full-blown party and full go 24 7 and so as a party if your party comes through here you'll get pulled in one of these whether you want to or not someone's going to come up to you and challenge you someone's going to come up and say hey this guy how how dare he he wore the same thing i did so let's go teach him a lesson so here go spill this drink on his stuff and ruin his stuff go spit in his food go push him in the mud whatever that is so they're going to try to hire you to do some sort of very sophomoric mundane immature prank Something to kind of lower their rivals a peg or two. But it's not done with outright malice. It's all this frivolity. I mean, your stuff can get a little insidious from time to time. It can definitely be dangerous. But it's not outright evil because it is the plane of good.
0: Yeah, as James was mentioning, they have this ability called Entice. And so if you pass within 100 feet of the eye having their party, you have to make a will save. It would be a wisdom save in 5th edition, but in 3rd edition it was a will save. Start off as a DC 10, plus one for each of the eye in the party up ahead, to a maximum of a DC 25. And if you fail that will save, you got sucked into the rebel.
1: Basically, somebody walks up to you with a giant pitcher and everybody just starts chanting
0: drink, 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 drink. <laughs> Yeah, they walk up to you with the beer bong funnel
1: again. This is every like teen movie. This is every you know prom night movie or graduation night movie that you've ever seen in the eighties and nineties. It's all absolutely this. It's all of this at once in your face. No go.
0: <laughs> you know what we need with togas. We absolutely need toga, 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 toga. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but if you get sucked in, the enticability lasts for a hundred and one days, or. Until you drop from exhaustion. Because all of the food and drink that you're consuming as part of this revel, it's all spirit food. It's all spirit drink. It'll get you drunk. It'll make you feel full. You get zero sustenance from it.
1: There's absolutely no nourishment.
0: Yeah, so you will stay wrapped up in this until you either last 101 days or you drop from exhaustion.
1: I think a good example of this. In this case, it was Winter Court because it was done in the Dresden files, and Dresden has far more interaction with Winter Court than he does Summer Court. but one of the first big events he saw with Winter Court, they kind of had a bacchanalia going where everybody was eating and drinking, and they had the music players playing, and they were in such a fervor of playing. The- the music and celebrating that they literally played until they collapsed and dropped.
0: Well, I do believe that that was the bargain that that particular because it was a trumpet player, yeah, that he believed that that yeah. was the bargain that he had struck,
1: right? But again, you see that kind of thing with Phalor anyway, where they make you celebrate or engage in this festive thing and you lose your sense of proportion, and so you go to your physical limit, whatever that may be,
0: yes. And whenever it says 101 days, it is 101. Prime Material Days, because the plane of Arborea does have a day and a night that are of the same length as the day and night on a Prime Material World. So you have a brilliant sun that comes up through the day, you have a brilliant full moon that comes up every night, and you have these giant freaking fireflies that go up into the canopy of the trees and just give it this glow through the night.
1: This is what every stage director for Midsummer Night's Dreams wish they could produce.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> and the last detail on the back eye is that if someone who succeeds on their will save is able to physically remove the affected people from the area, get them at least 100 feet away, the enticability ends. So if you get out of that 100 foot range, it ends. But the person who is under that effect will never willingly leave that area. So another
1: example where this has been done fairly well in pop culture was the Percy Jackson movie where it wasn't supposed to be a full block. It was supposed to be more like the Lotus Eaters in the Odyssey. But at that point, they walk into like it was like Las Vegas, like an arcade or a casino. I can't remember which one it was. I think it was technically supposed to be an arcade because it was geared more towards children. But they've got free food and drink, and everyone's happy. They're laughing. There's music. And they completely lost sense of time until they were able to drag themselves out of it. One of the characters realized what's going on, dragged the rest of the party out of it. And they'd realized that like three or four days had passed without them knowing. Now they're all just completely exhausted because they spent all of that time laughing and singing and playing and dancing and doing whatever.
0: All right. So there's a couple other locations of note before we start getting into talking about the actual layers of the plane themselves. One is called Evergold, also called the Fountain of Beauty. It is a quote unquote wandering spring in that it shows up where it wants to and where it needs to be. But it's got these fine golden sands and this brilliant blue water. And if you bathe in it, your charisma score goes up by 1d4 plus 1 for a month and a day. That's kind of awesome.
1: Now, this golden sand tends to act largely like an oasis. While it can appear anywhere within Aboria on a whim, you're probably much more likely going to find this on the third layer for reasons we will get to in a bit.
0: I don't know. I think it could appear on the second layer. Uh, it
1: could, but I think you're more likely to find it in the third layer. And as we get there, I will present my
0: reasoning for that. Yeah, I mean, knowing what the third layer is, I can see your reasoning already, yeah. but we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. And then the other location, there are several individual cities within Arborea, particularly on the first layer. The first layer is the most heavily populated of the three. The settlement is called Brightwater, and Brightwater is Las Vegas, wrapped up in a and d fantasy setting. It is literally Las Vegas just <laughs> dropped into here. The town itself was created by a trio of goddesses. Lyra, the Lady of Joy, goddess of dancing and merriment. Sune, the goddess of love and beauty. And Timora, Lady Luck, goddess of fortune and victory.
1: Well, I mean, are you going to tell me that Vegas is not fey magic? No, I'm not.
0: <laughs> and then later on, after a couple of the lore incidents, the goddesses, Shares, the lustful mistress, goddess of hedonism and sensuality and Joaquin the merchant's friend goddess of wealth and commerce they both were incorporated into Brightwater as well so it is an urban demi-plane within Arborea that is the living embodiment of Carpe Diem every possible diversion could be found here and it was expressed as a domain for short-term spending. That was the term (laughs) that they used in 3rd edition.
1: That's awesome. That ties right back into that whole spirit of revelry. This is absolutely where, again, if you want to have the hangover type encounter or quest line, you're going to probably do it here.
0: Absolutely. But did you die? (laughs) (laughs) But did you die? (laughs) But the thing that really just cements it for being... A Las Vegas analog is that the courts on Mount Olympus and in Arvandor consider this place an eyesore, but it's far enough away from both of them that even though they can see the lights from where they are off in the distance... They just don't bother with it.
1: Oh, you absolutely know for a fact Hermes and Zeus are here like every other weekend.
0: Oh, Hermes is one that is explicitly stated as making occasional trips in. He'll admit it. Zeus is like just, you know,
1: taking the form of a goat or a swan or a feather boa girl or something. Look at me. I'm a feather boa now. Wrap me around yourself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But there were a couple of other elven deities that were expressly cited periodically in Brightwater it's Elvis
1: you would totally find Elvis here
0: <laughs> but specifically it did say that these gods would go to Brightwater to have their fun and parties out of view of their petitioners who would probably disapprove of what they were doing wait wait they, yes yes the gods got away from their pet- petitioners because they didn't want their petitioners to be disappointed in them
1: that's awesome my brain just went on a wonderfully beautiful rabbit trail though so you know what? I'm connecting some dots here. So again, the petitioners here are petitioners that were, you know, partiers and revelers and things like that, and generally bacchanalia. And we're talking about people and music. And I was jokingly saying that, you know, haha, Elvis would be here. But you've got to think all your musicians, like you know, Kurt Cobain, Jimi Hendrix, all your '70s and '80s, your musicians that basically overdosed on drugs or whatever because they were partying too much on stage. They would totally be here. This is exactly where they would wind up.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: Oh my God, you'd have some freaking awesome shows. You would. That said, I was going to say with the demeanor here and that whole chaotic good, you would totally put on Rage Against the Machine as some background music for this. (laughs) Again, it's that chaotic, go against the system, just that overflowing of emotion, energy, and wanting to buck the system and raw, you know. So, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, you definitely have to have some punk rock going on here. So, yes, Rage Against the Machine, some Lawrence Arms, you know, something like that.
1: Yeah, definitely some British punk. Another thing I was going to bring up, trying to get the idea of the denizens here, the VTM. Now, again, you probably wouldn't have vampires per se in here, again, because chaotic, good, though they could theoretically wind up here but if you get the uh, bruja from vtm they were that very boisterous quick to fight for a cause for whatever reason whatever they believe their cause was you'd find that kind of person here
0: yeah i could see that i would almost put them a little bit more towards the Beastlands, personally
1: they would be right there on that border yeah toriadors. Yeah, I could see the Toryadors definitely. The Toryadors would be. here. Absolutely. Like I said, I see a lot of the anarchists, again, a lot of the British punks, those that are going to be not quite militant, but very politically active and outspoken for whatever their side would be, those kinds of people, because it is that chaos. So there is an innate wanting to fight the system, whatever the system is.
0: Yeah, I can see that. All right. So let's go ahead and dive into the layers. We talk a lot about the bulk of Arborea, the layers don't have as much going on with them individually. Most of what we have been describing so far is happening in this first layer. The layers of Arborea, the names of them have changed depending on edition. In second edition, the first layer was Olympus. In third edition, it became Arvandor, Arvandor being the name of the court of Corallon Lorethian and the Seldarine because in third edition, Mount Olympus, poof, disappeared. They just completely wiped Mount Olympus out. All mention of the Greek gods out. It, it was a dark
1: time. And it wasn't 4th edition Dark Time, but maybe this is why we got the Dark Times in 4th edition.
0: (laughs) Well, it's because they never incorporated the Greek gods explicitly into the game as a pantheon for a culture. Correct. The way that they did with the Norse or the Egyptian gods or the Sumerian gods. So whenever they did the shuffle going from TSR to wizards, they completely removed the Greek gods from Arborea. They retained that little moniker, which is why it is the Olympian glades of Arborea. But the first layer is now referred to as Arvandor because it is the location of the Seldarine court. So it is the first layer of Arborea is an infinite forest made of massive deciduous trees. So they're all, you know, your maples and your oaks and your beeches and your birches and all of your fruit-bearing trees. And all of these trees are explicitly, simultaneously bearing fruit and in bloom. Which That's kind of cool.
1: Now, they do say specifically they're deciduous because I had read several things yes. where they had mentioned actually the sequoia trees as well.
0: I didn't see anything about that. Everything that I have seen has specifically mentioned deciduous species. Okay.
1: So a lot of what I read, they were talking about the sequoias specifically. I didn't read the thing about deciduous because the sequoias are a conifer, but they are absolutely huge. I was lucky enough when I grew up that the Sequoia National Park was about an hour and a half from where I lived. So we went two or three times a year. I mean, you have the famous sequoia tree where they literally put a two-lane road through it where you could drive cars back and forth through the center of the tree, and it's still growing and going just fine. Again, these trees are just incredibly, incredibly large and massive. That was one of the big differences when I moved to the East Coast. You know, I've had family up in the Northeast in Jersey and stuff like that, but through the mountains here. What people consider a quote, quote, big tree, a tree that's probably three, four, maybe five feet across, people would consider that a fairly large tree out here. That would be a fairly young tree in this year in Nevada is where the pines there, you know, are 10, 15, 20 feet plus across very frequently.
0: Yeah, the redwoods and the sequoias are very large trees. But some of the pictures that I've seen of some of the old growth trees that were cut down early on in our area in Appalachia, some of the trees that they hauled out were 12, 13, 14 feet across. And these are elm trees and birch trees that are that big.
1: Right. When you had virgin forests and the trees were a couple, two or three centuries old, and absolutely you'd get them that large.
0: But all of those trees have long since been cut down in our neck of the woods. All in the name of progress. (laughs) Well, part of it was that they started on this side. Had they started on the West Coast and come across East it may have been a little bit different.
1: They tried to use, particularly the sequoias, for lumber. While they have some good properties, they tend to splinter real easy once you try to mill them, so they weren't really good for actual lumber.
0: Yeah, and it was difficult to actually fell them without them just sort of exploding.
1: Yeah, there's that too, because again, they are so incredibly huge. These things are like two, to 300 feet tall, so when they fell, they were taking everything with them.
0: <laughs> yeah, there was no subtle way to take down a sequoia. But what I'm getting at is... Here in this first layer of Arborea, you have oak and maple and linden and beech trees that are giant sequoia sized. Exactly, yes. You know, you have these trees that are 20, 25 feet across at the base. That's kind
1: of like you talk about these and I think of the concept of the dryads, where they lived in the tree. You know, they built cities around in the tree and these trees would definitely lend themselves to that kind of like the great tree in freaking Avatar, something like that.
0: But there are occasional glades within the forest where it opens up and that's where the elven petitioners who retained their elven form set up their settlements and they live this very idealized elven life in their afterlife. Not a bad life. i take it. i take it, yeah. But the days are filled with hunts and challenges and contests of feats of strength and skill. And then the nights are filled with feasts and tales told around the fire. You work hard all day and you party hard all night. And then whenever you're talking about the Seldarine, these elven gods, there are two categories of how they reside within the Plane of Arborea. Some of them have these huge natural cathedrals that are grown and sculpted from the living trees of the forest around them. And then there are others who have these massive palaces of crystal and white marble with golden towers that befit elven royalty. And Corallon, who is the patriarch of the entire pantheon, he's got one of the latter. He's got this massive white marble tower with gold filigree and just ta-da. Well, I mean, sometimes you have to impress. Yes. And it is explicit that... Only elves and his allies can even go into his palace. So you may be a really good guy, but if you're a dwarf, you're not getting in unless you have a personal invitation.
1: But again, as a DM, if you're doing that with your party, there's a bajillion different ways where your party could work a favor because, again, as we mentioned before, the denizens here are always looking for some sort of favor one way or another. But to do a favor big enough to get invited in, that in its own right would almost be a reward. Again, referencing Lord of the Rings, but when Kimley asked Gladriel for, you know, just a, a lock of hair. So, I mean, it'd be along those lines of, hey, come in here and check this out. Outsiders don't get to... That in itself would be a bard would like sell his entire family for an opportunity to see something like that, to be able to tell a story.
0: You know what I would see as a way to get in? Okay. You have to win a contest. Yeah. You have to win a contest. You have to be the first one to hunt some beastie in the woods. You have to tell the greatest tale around the fire. You have to sing the most beautiful song. You have to drink the most wine. You know, some sort of contest like that to show that you're worthy And then you are gifted an audience as a result of your victory.
1: So you get a golden ticket?
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) That's how I would do it.
1: I was going this, and particularly with the Olympic gods, just because a lot of my schooling, my research, I really loved classical history. So Greek and Roman was my thing for a long time. But if you want to do a faction type play, this is a great way to pick one of the elven gods or pick one of the fae or pick one of the Greek gods in the pantheon and start. Because again, a lot of it is one-upmanship and you get a ton of that in Greek and Roman myth. So you could do that. There's the wonderful Greek myth that Hermes stole Apollo's lutes and drove his cattle backward to steal his flocks and hide them so now apollo's got this minor grudge there's another there's actually happened a couple times in greek history where generals were selected to go into battle and the night before they got very drunk And in Greek cities, they had these statues called the Hermes, which were very anatomically correct, we will say. In celebration or protest, for whatever reason, these generals went and broke the phalluses off of these statues of Hermes before they went off to battle. Sometimes they got in trouble, sometimes they didn't. But could you imagine you could either do something for Hermes to further aggravate Apollo and later on the campaign, maybe Apollo holds a grudge. Or maybe you do something for Apollo and you go and you have to sneak into a city and break off the phalluses of these hermetic statues. (laughs) And so now in the future, Hermes is holding a grudge against your party, so you get a blessing of Apollo, but like this curse from Hermes and you kind of have to try to balance between the two. Or you could do like Athena and Ares. The whole start of the Odyssey with Troy, Ares threw in the golden apple to the fairest and they picked Paris to between Athena, Aphrodite and Hera to pick who the prettiest goddess was. And they were all promising them different things if you chose them. So again, that could be these things because those kinds of one-upmanship is what this realm is entirely about. Depending on your elven lore, your fae lore, you could do the same thing here. Maybe one of the gods did something trying to egg one of these elven deities into something. And so now they've just had enough and they want some revenge. Or they were just, okay, fine, I'm going to beat them at their own game type of thing.
0: I can see that. So talking a little bit about Mount Olympus, because we spent a lot of time talking about our Vandor, a weird aspect of the plane is that the Olympian court at mount olympus and the elven court at arvandor are actually at the same elevation by some trick of the plane that is odd yeah it's kind of weird because mount olympus is the second tallest mountain in the multiverse after mount celestia so it is a massive hunk of rock and yet somehow on the grand metaphysical scheme of things The pinnacle of Mount Olympus and the seat of Corallon, Lorethian, and Orvandor are at the same elevation. They're not one above the other. And I bet Brightwater sits right between the two of them, doesn't it? Oh, well, probably does. <laughs> because it was mentioned that... It's an eyesore to both. Both pantheons can see it and it's an eyesore.
1: Yeah. I bet it sits right between the two, like right dead center.
0: <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's this little neon land pimple in the middle of the forest. It's got to be that like
1: 80s bright neon pink.
0: Oh, yeah. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> so talking about connecting more dots, talking about how this plane tends to be, as you put it, a little wibbly wobbly timey wimey. And we talked about how the edges and the borders between Ysgard and the Beastlands kind of fluctuate through here. As we mentioned, as we were talking about the realm of Hades, technically the base of Mount Olympias is in Hades. So I don't know lore wise how they've actually fixed that with technically, I guess this also borders Hades in a weird way.
0: So if you're going up the slopes on the outside of Olympus, you can occasionally find different curtains that act kind of like the curtains in the ethereal plane where you can pass from the deep ethereal into the border ethereal. And it's not just to Hades. You can pass to Gehenna or Carceri in addition to Hades. By passing through the properly colored curtain. Okay. And there are also tunnels through the heart of Olympus. Most of them are dead ends. But if you know which way you're going. You can actually go through one of these tunnels. And also come out in one of these three lower planes.
1: Gotcha. So I mean Mount Olympus in itself is a little wibbly wobbly timey wipey. So again it kind of fits here. Maybe that's why it disappeared in third
0: edition. Maybe. So I think that pretty well... Covers the bulk of our Vandor, the first layer. Yeah. So let's go ahead and hop into the second layer. The second layer in second edition was called asa and third edition onward it's Aqualore, which is the Elven name for it. It is an Eternal Ocean.
1: I have some issues wrapping my brain around this layer.
0: So the descriptions of this layer have changed from edition to edition. Notably so. Yeah, considerably. In second edition. It's described as being a shallow sea dotted with islands. And each island has a portal on it, which leads to another layer of the plane. Okay. So that's how you get from layer to layer is you find the portal and it takes you to an island on the second layer. And then you have to find another island with a portal to the other layer that you want to go to. I could see that. And that's probably also another way that you get from location to location within the first layer with it being the infinite forest is you can find one portal and then you find another portal that goes to a different location on the same layer and jump back to the first layer to that other portal to get to your other location i
1: am guessing the answer is no but have you ever dealt with anything like new york subways or the elevated trains the los angeles bus system you got to find one hub to another hub to connect to a third hub to get back to where you were initially going. It kind of sounds like that.
0: I am familiar with the concept. The most complicated metro system that I've been on is the DC, which isn't as complicated as, say, New York or London or LA. Any of those sort of networks. But that's the most complicated one that I've ever been on. I don't
1: typically go to big cities. But you definitely get the point where you have to find a hub to get to another hub yeah. to get to a fourth place to get to where you're actually going. Yeah. it's like flying anywhere
0: in the United States. Yeah. Kind of. But anyway, so the way that I personally see the second layer in the second edition description is kind of like the pure lake from Brandon Sanderson's stormlight archive series. Have you read those? I have not. I'm not familiar with okay. them. Unfortunately, they're really good. You should read them. Okay. But the pure lake is this vast, shallow body of water. It's, the entire thing is ankle to knee deep, but it is pure crystal clear water. And there are people who live in these little stilt houses in the middle of the lake. And it's just a very idyllic, very peaceful life. And it's called the Pure Lake. And so that's kind of the vibe that I got reading the second edition description. A little bit deeper because there are aquatic creatures here. And there are that aquatic that is exactly deities. my problem.
1: That is exactly my problem because when you read the Planescape book, it literally says that it is a shallow sea two to three feet deep. So, like, how are you getting these aquatic creatures in there? It's like in a little kiddie pool or something. Those little, like, outdoor adobe pools that everybody have are deeper than this ocean plane is. And it just, here's a giant whale shark in two feet of water. (laughs)
0: yeah so whenever you transition from second edition to third edition the third edition has much more of a plane of water sort of feel to it but plane of water as it is depicted in fifth edition not as it's depicted in third edition because it does have a surface and it does have a bottom
1: right so it's not just all water yeah
0: so it's not just an infinite globe of water
1: this becomes the little mermaid with poseidon and your mermaids kicking around yes
0: but in third edition there are no islands anymore because the weather above the water is so chaotic and so sporadic and so prone to just whipping up into a very violent storm that it just washes away anything that comes up above the surface.
1: I could see that. So a DM note, if you decide to use this version of Ossia, we are hereby requiring you that your party has to run into Kevin Costner at least once. <laughs>
0: Maybe. (laughs) So the primary deity that you're going to run into in this second layer is the elven god of the sea elves and the oceans. In second edition, his name was Sachalus. In third edition, they changed his name to Deep Sachalus, and I can't figure out why. I think maybe just because they made the water deeper? Maybe. That's the only thing that I can think of. (laughs) Uh, Literally, I can find no record anywhere in my scouring of the internet that indicates why they changed his name from Seychelles to Deep Seychelles. None whatsoever.
1: Maybe like that was his birth name and he was trying to be trendy and so you kind of go from like Billy to Bill to William as you get older. Maybe just.
0: But Deep Seychelles has this palace made from coral, gold, and white marble with blue and green veins running through it. And the water in this layer has a very faint, radiant glow to it. And by Deep Seychelles's whim, all creatures can breathe in the water. I like it. Yeah, that's just such a neat little detail for navigation purposes. Like, oh yeah, you don't have to worry about water breathing. We took care of that for you. We got you. Until you piss Deep Seychelles off and it's like, everyone except... Yeah, except you. <laughs> You're not welcome here anymore. You can drown now. Deep Seychelles, by being part of the Seljurin, is a subordinate god to Corallon lorethian but he is also the patriarch of another pantheon. The pantheon let's see if I can pronounce this Esethalfanare?
1: Your guess is as good as mine on it's that one. It's this big
0: elven word that translates to those who have their being in the sea haunted by the true dream. Oh my, that's a good name. It's it, a great name. It is a great name. <laughs> it's a multi-species pantheon of the good-aligned deities worshipped by aquatic races. Okay. So you've got Eadro who is the creator god of the Lokotha and merfolk persona the god of tritons Serminare, the goddess of selkies this lesser deity from uh, second edition called water lion who is literally a heraldic sea lion that's awesome i love sea lions. yeah he's so for those of you who are unfamiliar he is a lion on top and a dolphin on the bottom he spends most of his time on the material plane but he swims around killing sharks that's Why just not? what he do. So imagine this creature that the upper half is a lion, the lower half is a dolphin, and he's about 30 feet long. And
1: he just swims around
0: killing sharks.
1: And I'm assuming saving shipwrecked sailors.
0: Maybe. He is good aligned, so he might be. And then there's Trishina, who is the creator goddess of a race called the Shaloran, who are called dolphin folk in some text. They're humanoid race, but they've got the webbed feet and the webbed fingers, and they've got this big sort of lionfish, almost crest going on their head. And they've got that smooth gray skin that a dolphin has. They kind of look like deep ones. Okay, But that's, that's who they are. Almost like the
1: merfolk from Harry Potter?
0: Kind of, yeah. But she is the creator of the Shaloran. She's also the goddess of dolphins. So dolphins are sentient enough to have their own goddess, which is good to know. And she is also the consort of Deep Seychelles. And then the last one is Sirenita, who is the patron deity of the Aarakocra. For some reason, there is a bird god air deity in this pantheon of water gods. It's the boobies. And there is a description. Someone tried to logic it out because she was friends with the elven god of air, And decided to join this pantheon as a way to consolidate some of her power because she was a very minor deity or some such. But I don't know why she wouldn't ally herself with some other air aligned gods instead.
1: I could see that. But I could see, like, you've got
0: a lot of
1: maritime birds. Like I said, you have the boobies, you've got the pelicans, you've got Albatross. Albatross, the regular seagulls. I mean, so
0: yeah, I could kind of see. And I mean, things like like osprey.
1: Yeah. I could see a Tidepool deity. Okay. It would
0: make a lot of sense. Yeah, I suppose. And the Pantheon is supposedly on very good terms with Strongmaus, who is the giant god of weather and the sea, among other things, and that he is known to actually provide aid to the followers of the gods in this Pantheon when the need arises. And the Pantheon is openly hostile towards Sekolah, who is the god of the Sahagin, as well as Umberli and Panzuriel, so Umberly is the chaotic evil goddess of the sea, which we referred to by one of her names as the sea bitch. Yes. Still a great ship name. Yeah. She is one of the primary gods that is opposed by this pantheon. And the last real important detail to note with this second layer with Aqualore is that it is the terminus for the river Oceanus. That river that started in Thalasia. On Elysium, the layer of the plane where Palor has his little palace. It starts there. It goes all through Elysium. It cuts across Ysgard and then it comes into this layer of Arborea. But there are whirlpools in Arborea that if you're not careful, you'll get sucked through them and you'll end up in Thalassia back in Elysium. Or if you're not careful, you get sucked through them and end up in the plane of elemental water.
1: Either one's not a good time.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, I
1: mean, at mean wouldn't be terrible.
0: But, you know, you pop out and suddenly you can't breathe the water anymore. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so that could be a problem. That's a little problematic, yes. And depending on who you are and what your intentions are, just showing up in Elysium would probably not be good for some people.
1: Yeah, granted. So... On one side of Oceanus, you've got Benny with all the horses. And on this side of Oceanus, you've got Brendan Fraser.
0: Yes, because the third layer is called Pelion in second edition. Mithardir is the elven name in second and third edition. It's an elven name that means white dust.
1: I really prefer Mithardir. I think that just has a better it name does, for
0: it. It does, but it's an infinite desert with this fine white chalky grit. It's not even described as sand. It's just called white chalky grit. So it's basically just like somebody crushed up a whole bunch of tums and just
1: blowing it around. Or if you're old enough to where your school actually had an old oh, yeah, had to go and clap out the chalk dust erasers. Yeah,
0: yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that. For those of you too young to remember that, we feel for you.
1: Yeah. So if you're too young to remember that, what you can do is go ask your grandma and grandpa for some nice sidewalk chalk to paint some nice things on the driveway. And when you grind those down a little bit, you can kind of get that dust. Now imagine handfuls of it. Yes. (laughs) But all white,
0: you poor unfortunate souls. You don't know the joy of being picked to actually go and clean the erasers. It was a joy, you got to go outside and clap the erasers together in this giant white plumes of dust that you really shouldn't have been breathing, but you were five and you didn't care. And you got to be out of class for like, five <laughs> yeah, it was great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we're old, deal with it. Get off my lawn.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, Mitharadir is a desert, the layer was supposedly once a forest but it is now largely abandoned. The whole plane is full of ruins from some lost civilization of Titans or giants or even some of the gods. And they're just these wind blasted ruins out in the desert. And like the rest of Arborea, this layer is subject to very sudden violent changes in the weather. Dust storms are very common. They'll come through and they'll bury large areas and unearth other areas and they usually riding at the front of very massive lightning storms
1: right kind of a way to picture this is with the mummy references It would be actually kind of a cool thing if you wanted to do like an Egyptian like a tomb run or a pyramid robbing type thing that whole windstorm that the mummy makes chasing after the biplane when they're coming in if you've ever seen or read Dune I know the new movies coming out here relatively soon they had a version of it in the 80s version and the sci-fi channel they had a really big but they called them my boobs they're under these giant huge dust storms that kind of blow through and wipe stuff up something like that would be very much one of these
0: yes i can definitely see that and so one thing that is notable is that despite it being a desert the temperatures don't swing to extremes it is a very temperate temperature so for those of us using the fahrenheit system it would be sitting somewhere between 70 and 80 the whole time probably looking about 20, 25 or
1: so in the Celsius scale. So it is a desert in the lack of water in precipitation aspect, not necessarily the extremes between hot and cold, like you would see
0: in like the Sahara or the Gobi.
1: But going back through, because again, this is a very dry place, we mentioned that the golden oasis, Evergold, because again, it is an oasis, it does appear where quote, quote, needed. I think you're going to be far more likely to find it here than you would say Oceanus because you're not gonna need a freshwater oasis if you can breathe and drink ocean water just. I was
0: I was Um, I was picturing it as being on one of the islands.
1: That could be a possibility, yes. The other thing is I could definitely see Goldwater being a waypoint in a map for something like a necropolis or like a hidden magical city that tends to move. And so finding Goldwater- Evergold. Is like Evergold. So finding Evergold is the last waypoint to find the ruin or the city or the end location you are looking for. And because itself moves, that makes it more of a challenge to find said location.
0: But it is explicitly stated that Hanali, the elven goddess of love and beauty- She knows the location of the pool at all times. So if you can gain an audience with her up there on the first layer, maybe she can give you a token or a favor that you can use to navigate to it.
1: You know what you get? You get the compass that Jack Sparrow has.
0: Yeah. The compass that directs you to your greatest desire. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. And so it moves
1: and it goes until you're dying of thirst and then it points dead to it. Maybe. I like it. But yeah, and so again, you can go back to that first layer. And then so how are you going to win Halali's favor? What are you going to do? Because I mean, I'm sure this isn't information she's just going to give out at a party. Like, oh yeah, by the way. Just go here, take a left. There's a 7-Eleven there. You'll be great. That's not going to happen. This is very valuable information, so you're going to have to earn it one way or another.
0: So in 3rd edition, they describe it as being completely devoid of all living creatures, as an empty layer. But in 2nd edition, there were creatures here. And actually, one of the gods of the Egyptian slash Mulherandi Pantheon, Nephithis, had her domain here. And for those of you who are familiar with Egyptian mythology. She is the sister of Isis. She was married to Set. And when Set murdered Osiris, she helped Isis. Once Isis gathered up all of the pieces of Osiris, she brought Osiris back from the
1: dead. A little bit of family drama. And then she left Set
0: because... Her husband killed her brother-in-law, and that just didn't sit right with her.
1: I I mean, Christmas was going to be awkward afterwards. You're Egyptian. (laughs) Jesus came over, and he was a little kid. He was being chased out. And then, you know, you have this weird dinner, and you got to sit there with the guy that killed your brother-in-law, and the brother-in-law is staring daggers at set. And they're like, dude, you know what you did. Just admit it. You know what you did. And so, yeah, the table gets really weird. There's water. There's wine. I don't know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so because this layer has been described as having once been a forest but now being abandoned full of all of these ruins and just the nature of the stuff that's getting blown around because they never call it sand maybe it's ash that's exactly what i'm thinking that is exactly what i'm thinking that this was a forest and it got burned completely and then all of this fine white chalky grit that's blowing around is the remnant ash from the forest i could totally see that and again
1: as i'd mentioned before i grew up in california not terribly far from sierra national park there's wildfires in california every year You can go back and forth fire is a part of the ecology of the sierra nevada mountains a lot of the trees and underbrush require the fire to actually germinate the sequoia is being among them if the pine cones themselves don't burn the seeds never fully germinate and no new growth comes out. You get a lot of dense undergrowth, so it prevents new growth unless it gets cleared out. That's an aside. The past several years, there have been several really bad fires in the areas I grew up in. And so the concept of seeing this dense forest area, the thought of it turning to ash is very present in my mind currently. Because again, a lot of these fires are where I spent my summers and Christmases and went on trips and fishing and stuff like that. So,
0: And so I can definitely see running an adventure here. In this gives you that whole Indiana Jones go out into the desert and find the ruins that you need to find to go into and navigate all of these traps in order to finally come to the final room and you face the final boss and you get your big artifact that you're hunting for oh this is perfect for that sort of an adventure
1: here's a weird twist it would be hard to do it would take a little bit of gymnastics from the dm to explain why the person is there okay but you go through all of this and again it is one of those indiana jones another good scenario i brought up with Ian again talking about the other avatar last airbender is when they're looking for the library that's buried in the sand with the sandbenders. It's the
0: quenchiest.
1: Yes, but you go through and as you get closer to the location you're getting to, you realize that in fact this isn't sand, but it is ash like we talked. Maybe some cinders are blowing in the wind and as you get to where you're going, what if there's a giant Efret sitting there? Okay. And he established himself and so he just burnt everything around him as that's what you're seeing and so you've got this basically fire junior fire elemental chilling in the middle of whatever you got to find and you have to unseat, dislodge, kill, remove, whatever ever him to achieve your final goal
0: the only issue is this plane would be diametrically opposed to the alignment of an ifriti ifrit. and that's why i said
1: it would take a little bit of gymnastics from the dm if not an ifrit then like i said possibly just a large fire elemental a phoenix sort. a phoenix would be great yeah a phoenix would work beautifully maybe there's an egg or there was an egg there or it just finished its rejuvenation cycle yeah a phoenix would be a great opponent to face
0: well called i like that so that pretty well covers the individual layers. Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about some of the creatures that you find in Arborea. The first most prominent one, especially from 2nd edition, is the Eladrin. And the Eladrin did not used to be these seasonally attuned fey elves from the fey wild they used to be the offspring of mortal elves who were part of the Selderine court that were born in arborea so they had that celestial infusion into them to where they were effectively immortal but they were just super powered elves basically these
1: are kind of like your night elves from wow almost with the moonwells. yeah they had that immortality they had a sprite form but they were largely immortal and unkillable and very densely magically infused
0: absolutely yes so with the eladrin they had the cold iron vulnerability of the fey but they also had immunity to lightning damage And they had immunity to magic missiles, which would have been force damage.
1: That's impressive. Yes.
0: They were immune to lightning and force damage. And they were resistant to cold fire and poison damage. Just as an overarching Eladrin trait.
1: That would make for a very difficult battle. Absolutely,
0: yeah. Oh, they were tough. Most of them were... In the 14,000 to 22,000 XP range. The highest ranking ones, the Tulani, were on par with Death Slot at 27k. Oh, wow. Yeah, they are stout. So there were seven different variants of Eladrin. And I'm going to go through them briefly here in a minute. You had four lesser and then three Greater Eladrin. The Lesser Eladrin could travel to any of the Upper Plains. It could travel to the Outlands, which is where, where Sigil, and actually did find out that despite all of my knowledge of the English language, it is codified in the second edition Planescape books that it is pronounced Sigil and not Sigil. It still kills me a little bit inside every time I say it. Same here. But... <laughs> planescape appropriate the city's name is sigil and if you are curious it is on page four of the second edition planescape sigil and beyond book or the seagulls from sigil (laughs) (laughs) just because i'm on the topic i'm going to go ahead and just read this little sidebar passage we can excuse the fact that you slaughtered two ugoloss before you realized where you were outsider but you pronounced the name of our fair city sigil not sigil and there can be no excuse for that So that is a direct quote from page four of this book. So yes, unfortunately, it is pronounced Sigil. But anyway, that tangent completely out of the way. So Outlands is where Sigil is. So the Lesser Eladrin could go to any of the upper planes. So any of the good aligned planes, Sigil and the Outlands or the Astral Plane. Those were the places that they were limited to going. The Greater Eladrin could travel to any of the planes that they wanted to and they could pass into any plane without being summoned, which made them unique among the Outer Plane native races. So, like the Gardinals and the Divas and the Archons and the Tenari, which are the demons, the Devils, Yugoloths, any of those races that are native to the Outer planes, none of them could actually travel to the Material Plane without being summoned there. And the same goes for, like, genies genies can't leave the elemental plane and go into the material plane without being summoned the greater aladrin could which is fairly damned impressive. yeah and it's because they had that mortal elven lineage that was just infused with all this celestial energy but they did have a rule that if they were traveling on a material plane they had to travel under a veil and disguise themselves as a human or demi-human native to the plane they were traveling to and if they violated their veil, they had to return to Arborea for 1001 years before they could travel to the Material Plane again. So they were kind of the Prime Directive. Yes, they had to go sit in timeout. Yeah, that's really funny.
1: So going through, we talked about the other creatures from the various planes and how they couldn't travel the Material Realm. How do the monodrones get to the Material Realm then? Or why are they allowed?
0: You know, I'm not entirely sure, but I think it has something to do with the nature of the Modrons.
1: The fact that they're just mechanical and not really alive. (laughs) They're cybernetic. Yeah, kind of. (laughs) Those of you that have watched the Loki miniseries, they are not going to uh, violate their grand
0: timeline. But it might also be because the Great Modron March, some people speculate that it is to gather information so that the Primus can calibrate mechanists to keep some sort of great celestial multiplanar balance going. They may be able to travel to all of the planes because that's what they were designed to do.
1: That would make sense. And again, that goes back to the fact that they're a mechanical creature rather than a technically a living creature, I suppose, being a construct.
0: So the Eladrin, they're not really governed by an overarching court, but there is the Court of Stars. The Court of Stars is ruled over by the Eladrin, Queen Morwell, also known as the Lady of the Lake. Oh my. And she is considered the cultural authority as acknowledged by all of the Eladrin. They acknowledge that she is the most powerful of the Eladrin and they acquiesce to her authority. But like I was saying, we have seven variants of the Aladrin. I'm going to go through the four lesser Aladrin first. The first one are the Berlani. They are native to Pelion, the third layer. The Berlani can transform themselves into a living windstorm. So basically, they transform themselves into an air elemental. And one of their details is that they can only be hit by plus one or better weapons. So they are inherently magical. They are able to transform themselves into a literal dervish. All of them are exceptionally strong. They all boasted 18 strength, which for second edition, having an 18 strength was, was a huge, huge deal. So they had a very Bedouin feel. They were nomadic. They traveled in small groups. They were very proficient with bows. They would use harrying and skirmishing tactics whenever they had to fight something. They sound very much like Fremen. Yes, I can definitely see where the Fremen either were the inspiration for this or I think that's how it works because I think Dune predates D&D by substantial amount. Yeah,
1: Dune came out in the 70s and Herbert used a lot of the lore from Lawrence of Arabia to come up with the Fremen as well. Which again was directly uh, related to the Sunni Muslim groups in Arabia at various points.
0: So there's the Berlani. The next one are the Korr. The core were the wee folk of the Eladrin. They were tiny. They were basically sprites. So they had these little wings. They were about six inches tall and they flitted around and they were the commoners of the Eladrin. Commonly used as couriers, heralds, or pages within the courts. Also, a fun little fact is they are nocturnal. So they would only come out at night and they would dance around with the fireflies and such. They would typically avoid combat except when presented with their nemeses, which were imps they would get super violent against some imps. I like it. And if you were to bring them into 5th edition, that would probably extend to Quasits, because Quasits and imps were all lumped together as subgroups within that group in 2nd edition. And it also states that they don't much like mephits either. I could see that. And again, that's kind of those lower planar type creatures. And they had rapiers that were treated as plus one daggers and little bows and arrows, and the arrows were treated as plus one darts. So they're not going to deal a ton of damage if they attack you but it's still going to hurt a little bit
1: this is kind of like tutu in the zaga yes absolutely (laughs) that's
0: exactly what they are the next one are the noviere who are native to Asa. so the second layer they are the most amenable to conversing and dealing with outsiders they look like sea elves but without the webbed fingers and toes and they tend to be a bit stockier more like a human in their appearance And their skin varies from a blue to green and their hair varies from a blue to green. But either one of those could also just be gold, like solid, shiny gold. This is going to be your Jason Momoa's. Yeah, this is the merfolk from Aquaman. That's what they're going to look like. And as their extra shape, they can transform into dolphins made entirely of water. That's kind of cool. And if they hit you in their dolphin form and they roll a 19 or a 20 on the attack roll... They can engulf you like a water elemental does. That's awesome. I would love to
1: see these things at SeaWorld. You have the splash zone, they just jump into the crowd. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And despite being a lesser Eladrin, they would periodically travel to the material plane to trade with nymphs or merfolk. And they were the ones that were most likely to engage in trade because they really liked gems and jewelry. Okay. Gotta respect that. You
1: know, gotta love the shiny things.
0: And they would fight with tridents and nets, naturally, because Aquaman. And the difference is that their nets, unlike what we have that our player characters can use that have like a 10 foot, 15 foot range on them. These nets have a 30 foot range underwater and a 60 foot range on land. Oh my. And because of the way that it works, you can't cut yourself out of the net that you're in. but Someone else can come and cut you out of it.
1: Because you are so restrained. I would say it'd be heavy enough or you know, maybe they have hooks to pin you down or something like that.
0: And then the last of the Lesser Ladron are the Shear. They are the most common ones within the Courts of Arboria. These are your mounted gallant knights. That's how they present themselves. They ride around in plus four full plate with a plus three sword.
1: These are the uh, elvish fighters that come up in the Battle of Helm's Deep. But you get where they all line up and they're all in the formations. and They all unsling their bows and they're just all... That's a beautiful scene, by the way. I love that scene.
0: They can transform themselves into a ball of fairy light once per hour It doesn't really have any offensive capability. It's just kind of like a vampire can disappear into a cloud of mist. It's there. I have to get away now. In second edition, it had a fly speed of 24 so 24 squares around yeah it was a get up and go because their normal speed was their mounted speed because they're always on their horses and i think i said they had plus three swords but they actually have plus three lances so they're got plus three lances and plus four full plate they're stout so
1: again summoning my inner magnus because i tend to do that if one of these was on the material plane and feeling really, really insidious. Pop into this fairy light and then like if people are chasing the fairy light thinking, hey, we're going to catch it and we're going to roll it in the dirt because we're winning and then it flies into maybe a group of uh, will-o'-wisps.
0: <laughs> yeah, but the one detail that we need to cover before we move on is that their horses, when the sun is down, they can fly. Because why the hell not? <laughs> just, just why not?
1: You know what? No
0: wings no... and your horse can fly.
1: Well, I've never seen an elephant fly, so meh.
0: Yes, their mounts can fly when the moon is out.
1: Okay, I've got nothing. Sure, why not? <laughs> so going
0: into the three greater Eladrin, the first are the Fear. These are the ones that are consumed with a passion for art and music and beauty. They like to live as wandering minstrels and bards within Arborea. They're the most likely to go to the Prime Material Plane and seek out mortals, looking for artists to patronize and to aggrandize. And they have either a plus three greatsword or plus five javelins that turn into bolts of fire when they throw them.
1: That's kind of awesome. And I'm not going to say anything about a bunch of red-haired bards running around.
0: It's not just that they have red hair. They also have have fiery red
1: eyes. So these, I think, could almost be confused for tieflings really fast.
0: Well, they would have to be under a veil if they went into the material plane. But
1: still, a tiefling would fit that real quick because, again, the red hair, red eyes. I could see that. Why not?
0: Yeah. But whenever they become angered and they go to go into their alternate form, their gaze can blind a creature for 2d10 rounds and deal 1d10 fire damage when doing it. Oh, my. And so their alternate form is they transform into a literal pillar of fire, With a fly speed.
1: Okay, why not? Let's do it. Because this isn't even my final form yet. (laughs) And because they're
0: very musical, they're bards. Let's just straight up say it. They're bards. At will, they can sing and use charm, hold person, sleep, or suggestion out to 50 feet. At wow. will. That's.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm not messing with these. I, I'll,
0: I'll take a pen. they have a. They radiate a 10 foot protection from evil aura. Just to
1: round things out.
0: Because they are creatures of inherent good.
1: And again, these in second edition were some fairly beefy creatures. Oh, yes. so these aren't something you're meeting in mass. These are something that your party's hopefully on the good side of when your party's like level 15, 16. Yes.
0: <laughs> the next one are the Gale. They're the knights errant of the Eladrin. They resemble high elves. But they have opalescent eyes and they have this just faint glow to them at all times. And their alternate form is, and I quote, an incorporeal globe of eldritch colors, five feet in diameter.
1: That's a little terrifying.
0: What's even better is while they're in that form, they can shoot laser beams that deal 2d12 damage. The but- <laughs> hell okay they turn into a disco ball we got it yes
1: <laughs> all right so we're going to summon our interjunta volta and just kind of get those hip thrusts going
0: <laughs> and when they're in their humanoid form they have a plus 4 longsword that deals an additional 1d10 positive damage or radiant damage To evil aligned creatures. So what
1: you need is like a group of celestials and like one of these kind of as a vanguard as you're running through for the end of your campaign to like get you into the the citadel of whatever you're going or
0: something like that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Okay. But I'm not done yet. So like the fear can look at somebody and blind them and deal fire damage. With a gale, it is specifically with evil creatures. If they have five hit dice or less, she looks at them They fail their saving throw. They die.
1: So this is what's actually inside the Ark of the Covenant in Indiana Jones.
0: In their disco ball form. That's right. So if they succeed on their saving throw, or if they have more than five hit dice, or if they are not evil aligned, they will also fear for 2d10 rounds. Okay. Yeah, I'm not
1: messing with these things. Magnus is taking the high road and taking a solid pass on this one.
0: And then double up on this. It has a double strength protection from evil whatever that means is that
1: like double secret probation
0: it, whatever the benefits from protection from evil in second edition are double them and that's what it's got but there are two of them. plus <laughs> a globe of minor invulnerability So they are unaffected by spells of third level or lower and protection from normal missiles. So you can't shoot them with non-magical ammunition. Why
1: the hell not? Okay. Yeah. That would be incredibly difficult to fight. Yes.
0: And these are individuals that would tend to go to the material plane to act as advisors and counselors and often aid mortals, especially all of your rebellions. So if you have a rebellion against a tyrannical leader, you would probably have one of these, Gale acting as an advisor to whoever is running the rebellion.
1: You know what I could see this in? Something, not exactly the Curse of Strahd, but something along those lines where you've got an evil, entrenched vampiric court or something like that. Or you've got a demon that's overtaken, an area maybe posing as a mortal in the material realm. And this would be its counter.
0: Yeah, I can see that. So the last one are the Tulani. They are the high lords of the Aladrin court. They are the big bads. And you thought the gales were good. These guys got it more. So they all carry a plus four sword of sharpness. So the sword of sharpness in second edition, if you're familiar with the Vorpal sword that decapitates on a critical hit, The Sword of Sharpness is capable of Dismemberment and Decapitation. Okay. Just as... The Snickersnack? snicker snack. They have the same Frighten or Kill ability that the Gale have, except that the cutoff is 8-hit-die instead of 5-hit-die. Okay. And it also blinds the creature. Fair enough. And it can assume the secondary form of any other Eladrin at will. So it can change into a water dolphin, it can change into an air elemental, it can change into the disco ball, and if it changes into the gale's disco ball form, it's light beams never miss and deal 3d12 damage. Sweet Jesus.
1: You know what? I'm seeing this and I am suddenly thinking of the description of the angels in the book of Isaiah, where it was the circles upon circles and just the rings of yes. eyes. I am seeing some inspiration here.
0: <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little bit. On these. All right. So the Tulani didn't wear armor, but they had they are armor. They have the same ambient bonuses that the Gale have. So they have their double protection from evil, their minor globe of invulnerability, and they have their protection from non-magical missiles. Plus, they can only be hit with weapons of plus four or greater or cold iron so yeah you would want to get you some cold iron weapons if you were going to go and take on a talani
1: i could see this getting swarmed by like a bunch of cavemen or like a super primitive people well wouldn't be a cold iron wouldn't be cavemen but like early iron age a roman legion there we go just going through and finally pinning one down maybe that could be like the point of lore or something like that with the town is that their legion defeated one of these things and now there's maybe that would actually be a good point of lore to run actually that'd be actually kind of cool and so now there's like a grudge and there's like a yearly celebration but this thing's wanting its revenge and maybe Maybe since it gave up its form and a thing to fight this legion for whatever reason, it has to wait its thousand and one years yeah. and it's ticking over. It's coming back because it's pissed.
0: Yeah, I can see that. And so in addition to all of its inherent magical stuff that it's going to have, it can grant one wish per year Okay, and it can cast its choice of meteor swarm, power word kill or time stop once per day.
1: Yeah, I like it. So the Roman legion knocked this thing down despite all of that. And it's just bitter. <laughs> yeah.
0: So those are the Eladrin and those things are crazy. Yeah, they were. And I can see why they nerfed them (laughs) like they did. Just a little bit, yeah. And I have to say, I like the lore feel that you get from them now being from the Feywild and have them being tied to the seasons. I like that. But I want some Celestial Eladrin. Especially since the 5th edition, one paragraph that you get on Arborea, does mention that there are Celestial Elves in Arborea. They don't call them Eladrin, but they do say that there are celestial elves. If
1: only there was a homebrew podcast that did write-ups on creatures that ported things from older editions to fifth.
0: Yeah, I don't know who would do that. Um, (laughs) But anyway, moving on to some of the other creatures because we are running way long. Way long. One of the creatures I'm going to go into a little bit more detail on this one when we get to its native plane of Eastgard, the Lelendi. So, the Lelendi are the guardians of the infinite staircase within Sigil. They are these weird chimeric humanoid creatures. They have the upper body of a human, typically a female, the lower half is a snake, and they have these angelic sort of hawk
1: wings. So if you really want to piss one of these things off, just call him a yonti.
0: I mean, if they even really cared. I don't know. I would
1: see that as like a huge insult.
0: <laughs> they are good, slightly chaotic. They may just roll with it. Possibly. So one of the big things that you're going to find with an arbore, you're going to find all of the creatures from Greek myth. So you're going to find the Titans. You're going to find Cyclops and another giant kin. Medusa, Gorgon, Chimera. Fawn satyrs and the eye. The eye do have a very fawn-ish appearance, but they are not actually fawns. You're going to have harpies, the Lamassu and the Sphinx. You're going to have pegasi, unicorns, centaurs, barriars, which are like centaurs, but with sheep bodies instead of horse bodies. Minotaurs. There's one from period medieval heraldry called the Leonin Sagittary, which are basically centaurs with a lion body instead of a horse body that use bows i like it that is an actual mythological creature from period medieval heraldry that you could translate into this
1: if you've ever played legend of zelda breath of the wild they actually have a couple of these as fightable creatures that you can come across they call them leonids okay
0: so You're going to also find fey spirits and fey creatures. Strangely enough. Because the summer court is Summer court. (laughs) You're going to find your giant beasts. So bears, eagles, boars, deer. They specifically say that if you set snares out in the woods, you're going to snare rabbits the size of you. The Easter Bunny. Yeah. You're going to catch the Easter Bunny.
1: So if you've ever watched Donnie Darko. (laughs) Yes. Why are you wearing
0: that stupid people suit? Particularly on the second and third layers I would see elementals. So water elementals on the second layer, air elementals on the third layer. You know, oversized sea creatures like those found in their three feet of water. Yeah. That still bothers me. Well, it me. depends on if you're going with the shallow ocean or the deep ocean from third edition. The holly fonts can be found here again. So our little golden winged elephants with psionics like from that. Elysium. You can find foo creatures here. They seem to be found in all of the upper realms. Angels, Archons, and Metallic Dragons would all be found here.
1: Totally makes sense. A Metallic Dragon and a Bacchanal. (laughs) Oh my. (laughs) And then going
0: back to Pelion, the third layer, these are some that I would throw in. Burrowing creatures. So purple worms, boulettes, onkegs, those sorts of things. Umberhulks. Anything that would naturally burrow. Anything that would live underground, I would definitely hazard putting them out there. Anything that you wouldn't want to fight in the desert. I could definitely see a brass dragon living out here. Yeah,
1: various venomous snakes, scorpids.
0: But yeah, so I think that just about does it.
1: Yeah, I mean, this realm has so much you can do. I learned so much doing this realm and there's so much fun stuff. I mean, you could run an entire campaign. You could run multiple campaigns just in a Borea. And do all kinds of crazy stuff and nothing would ever be the same just because there's so much stuff way out of left field. that you Absolutely. Do. This was a lot of fun to get into.
0: So before we get into our wrapping up, we have our first patron on our Patreon. Woohoo. So just wanting to shout out RPG Match. So thank you for becoming a patron. This is your shout out.
1: Yes. Thank you, sir. Madam Other. You're awesome. Thank you so very, very much. We are
0: humbled that you have decided that we are good enough to throw money at. So thank you. And thank all the rest of you for listening today. If you have any suggestions or ideas for upcoming episodes, please send us an email at undercommontaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. I'm still doing our Shakespeare and insult page a day calendar inspired role play prompts six days a week. They go up on the Twitter account and then get cross posted to the Instagram and Facebook accounts. I have recently started actually posting all of our notices on Instagram again. I stopped because it was a headache, but I feel that you guys are worth it. So I'm going to be trying to keep up with that from here on out. Awesome. We are also on Patreon. So patreon.com slash taste. If you enjoy the show and you want to help us out financially, come on over there. Become a patron.
1: You can find our podcast wherever you're listening to your podcast. Though, so as always, rate and review us. If you give us a review, it helps us let us know what you're liking, what you're enjoying, so we can bring you more content you actually like.
0: So thanks again for listening. We will see you again next week in our next plane, which is going to be the Infinite Layers of the Abyss. Oh my. So good night and see you next week. Happy gaming. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. If you enjoyed what you heard, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, suggestions or ideas, you can email them to us at undercommon at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media, we're at undercommon taste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube and on Twitter at the handle at UCTHomebrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash undercommontaste. Our theme is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash Crowell. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.